Gracious God, we do sing your praises that you are glorious. We thank you that you are not some homemade deity or some local uh, legend, that you are the eternal God of all time and Lord over all history and Father of our souls and Redeemer through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So all that we are, we owe to you. We ask, would you speak to us this morning? Encourage us in what is true. Heal us. Convict us. Confront us. Lord, and strengthen us that you might continue to grow us in Christ-likeness. It is good that you speak. Would you give us ears to hear, we pray. This is what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Wendy Plump, in a 2010 New York Times article, talks about giving advice to a friend of hers. She was giving him advice because he had just found out that his wife had had an affair. And he had found that it was difficult for him going home each day. He couldn't even look her in the face. So every single day after work, he would instead drive to a hotel and he would get a room because he just couldn't deal otherwise. The reason why Wendy was giving this gentleman advice about this is because she could empathize because she had been there herself. She, too, had had an affair and also had been a, a victim of her husband having had an affair. And so she understood what it was to sit in empty hotel rooms. If you care to, you can read her long and painful recounting and her story in her article. But she ends it this way, and these are her words in summary. From where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel room. Whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one. And despite the sex and the excitement, or the drama and the fix of everyone's empathetic attention, there is no view from this room that is worth having. Sex is beautiful. Sex is a gift. Sex is powerful. Sex is pleasing to God, but only when it's found within the boundaries in which he has given it. Any other arena, it is a hurricane of thrashing winds, a shredding of lives, a flooding of souls with pain, a drowning of all that is good and healthy and noble and right to where there's no more light after a while and you can't even breathe or find oxygen. Now, of course, it doesn't seem like it at the time. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so attractive. But that is the truth. And the truth is inevitable. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we come across one of, I think, the most powerful and direct passages in all of Scripture about the fury of sexual immorality and of our need for purity and for sanctification. And while this passage is unflinching in its assessment, it is also very life-giving in its antidotes. Paul, after thanking God for the Thessalonians for the better part of three chapters. He looks like he's going to start another topic, but he loves these guys so much he ends up thanking God for them again two and then three times, encouraging them of his love for them, even though he was there only a few days and he's been driven away. He's affirmed for them. He's longed to get back to them. He's prayed for them now at the end of chapter 3. We saw this last week that his heart's desire for them was that they would grow more in Christ-like holiness. And now he continues that theme of Christ-likeness and sanctification by working towards the very thing that he has just prayed for, by reinforcing something that he's already discussed before, something that 
in the handful of days that he was there with them, he had opportunity to address. Pick up with me in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. First off, I want you to notice that even though Paul has talked about this before, Paul tells them that this teaching at this point, as he brings it to them in writing this letter back to them, that this is the urgent need of the hour. This is the urgent need of the hour. It was the case for Paul there in writing to the Thessalonians, and it is the case for us today, the urgent need of the hour. I want you to see the urgency. Just note the double request that's there for starters in verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Well, which is it? Are you just asking or are you really asking? What are you doing? This goes back to what he said before. He's doing the very thing he told them in chapter 2. He did when with them. He's pleading with them as a father. He's saying, will you hear these words? I urge you. And he doubles the mention of the plea. Once you notice later in verse 1, he says this is something that we must practice, this practice of pursuing purity. He said, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, and please God. Some of your translations say uh, how you should walk. Some actually say how it is necessary for you to walk. The word that's there in the Greek is this tiny little particle, dei, and it means must. He's saying, look, we talked to you before, and I'm pleading with you, and I'm asking you again to hear these words that you must hear. It's the urgent need of the hour. Notice down again in verse 6, there's another double warning. And that no man transgress and no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Well, which was it? Did you tell us or did you solemnly warn us? <laughs> the word for solemnly warn has as part of its root uh, the word or marturion, where we get the word martyr or witness. He says we we have seen it, and so we are as a personal witness of it, pleading with you. And lastly, notice that all these words come with the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, it doesn't need to be said, but he says it explicitly. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. In fact, the word therefore commands or commandments in verse 2 is often used in other contexts in uh, ancient Greece in speaking of the military context. So th these are not optional. This is what you as a soldier are required to do is how that word is often used. It's the urgent need of the hour. You see, in Thessalonica, outside of Judaism, the moral landscape was dominated by religions that either ignored sexual impurity or they actually encouraged sexual impurity. There were different cults that actually uh, prompted and practiced sexual immorality as a part of their worship. 
from the cult of Dionysus to Aphrodite to Osiris to Isis to Kabiris, if I'm even pronouncing that correctly, to Priapus and others. And it wasn't just the religion, the religions of that day, but beyond that, just the social norms of that day encouraged the activities, sexual activities. Cicero said, young people should have relationships sexually with one another as long as no one gets hurt. Good luck with that. In Greece, it was expected that if a man had female slaves that he could sleep with them in order to engage in his pleasure. Antipater, who was an ancient writer, in fact, interestingly enough, from Thessalonica. Antipater of Thessalonica. I won't read you his ancient writing, but he says that using prostitutes basically is wonderful, as long as you have the money for it. I mean, there's some downside because you need some cash. But otherwise, it's wonderful. Well, besides all this, we, d we didn't need the encouragement of religion, and we didn't need the the lies of culture and its social norms because we have enough wrestling just with our own human heart, right? I don't need an outside influence. Nothing's really changed in 2,000 years in the flesh of man. This is the urgent need of the hour, Paul writes. If Paul has, he's already taught it before, right? He says, I've already talked to you about these things. In fact, he even tells them in verse 1, and, and you're doing pretty good with this. Uh, I, I told you, what you must do to walk with God and, and to please Him. And, and you actually are doing these things. And why in the world is there such an emphasis at this point to even talk about it again? Well, it's because it's a constant temptation every day, including ours. And it's a critical issue for every believer because we are really called to be aliens in the cultures in which we are called. And the consequences of not understanding this clearly are devastating, aren't they? The call here in this passage is not for us to seek moderation in sexual immorality. It is to seek with all of our hearts abstention. So, for the love of purity, Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says this is the urgent need of the hour and the Spirit of God speaks to us today. I'm going to speak and I'm going to use this word purity and, and I'm going to use the word impurity because the word sexual immorality have a, a lot of syllables in them and that's a lot of hard work. Okay, But the Greek word behind it, pornea, whenever I say it, I am taking to include for our application all sexual activity outside of marriage, period. But not only activities, I'm including, because by extension the Lord Jesus absolutely would and the Spirit would, all desires of our heart that are impure, including those that stand behind pornography and masturbation. I'm including also all attitudes of mind and soul and the ways that we talk and the ways that we think. So when I say purity or impurity, you can roll all that in because we could connect the dots with other scriptures. And surely none of that is out of the pur purview of what the Spirit of God wants to address in our lives as we are called to live as aliens in this day. Now, I believe this morning as we come to this passage that the Lord God is speaking to me and he's speaking to you in a culture where we have been ruined in this area. I want you to know that God's grace is more than sufficient. And we're going to see that in a minute before we're done. 
But we need to hear the Lord speak and we need to let him speak this morning. First, because this is the word of God. And I don't know why you came, but that would be the reason we need to. But second, second and third, we need to hear the Lord speak for the sake of those who have not yet ruined themselves in this area, but they live in a world of constant temptation. And so for them this morning, let's let the, the Lord's warnings ring clear and sound true and let his protections bathe them and draw them home. And for the sake of the rest of us who have known sin's deceit, and we don't need to be reminded again at some level because we already grieve the consequences that we know all too well. For us, let's let the Lord's reminders clarify spiritual realities and strengthen our own conscience so that we can hate sin more and treasure our Savior better. This is the urgent need of the hour. I want you to notice now how the passage is laid out. The entire passage has a single main point. It is really an extension of Paul's prayer in the end of the previous chapter. The single main point is found there in verse 3, and here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Everything he's going to say boils down to that right here. He's just prayed that they would grow in holiness, grow in Christ-likeness, grow in sanctification, and now he's going to apply that to a specific specific need that he knows of. So here's what we find in this passage. The goal of God's good work in you. So I'm telling you the entire passage comes down to this one thing. It's the goal of God's good work in you. It's found in verse 3. Because what God is doing in all of his work in you is to sanctify you. What God is doing through the gospel and its work in me is to make me more like Christ. Will you hear his voice this morning in whatever way that he wants to speak to you? Will you grant him grace to be Lord and Master in this place and say, I, I want to hear what you want to tell me? Because that's the goal that he is going to work towards. And he would say we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. But this is where we're going. Now, that single main point is followed by four commands in this passage. In the Greek, quick grammar lesson, they're given as infinitives, and you could pick them out. Four clear commands of God's will to help you get there. This is going to tell us all about the goal of God's good work in us. And then there are four clear commands of God's will to help you get to that place of God's good work. Okay, so here they are. Four commands, I'm just going to show them to you. First in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's the main point, and there's, here's the first command. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality. And by that, I'll say purity, and I mean all forms, even just those that aren't actions, but also of heart and attitude and mind and thinking. You can apply it as such. Abstain from sexual immorality. The second clear command is in verse 4, that you know how to control your body. It says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That is the second clear command of God's will to help you get there. The third and fourth are back to back and they're found in verse 6. And that no man transgress his brother and defraud his brother so that we not transgress one another. That's the third command. Don't transgress one another and don't defraud one another. That's the fourth. All right, you got that? So that's the main point. 
That's all this passage has to say this morning. And then you've got the four clear commands. Everybody has that? All right, good. Then we're done. You guys can go home. That was easy. Right, because this, this is easy, right? No, it's not. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning not so much focusing on the what, but really on the how and the why. So next, our passage provides for us four sober reminders. Four sober reminders. Here's what I want for you this morning. Here's what I want for me. And here's what I think the Spirit of God wants for us. Is that you would hear these sober reminders and maybe even go back to them regularly to help you love sexual purity to help you run from sexual immorality, to help you take the thought of delightful, lustful pleasure and instead see through it for the truth of what it is and put it in its place to the point where it becomes distasteful to you because you know at some level this is a lie and this is death. What I want for you is that you would have help to run Christ as a refuge and seek your joy in him. So, four sober reminders to that end. First, impurity makes us traitors. Impurity makes us traitors. That's found in verse 5. You can start with me in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And here it is, the the betrayal, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, when we choose impurity, we choose to play for the other team. You know, you know what Paul said of the Thessalonians back in chapter 1? He says, you know what? Your reputation is known throughout Macedonia. And you know what that reputation is? People know the story about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what he tells them. You know what he says three chapters later? He says, when you choose impurity, you know what you do? You turn from God to idols to serve a dead and false God. Impurity makes you a traitor to your God. You look like one of the Gentiles who don't even know him, he says. Don't be disloyal in your body your heart or in your mind, but set them apart to the Lord. Even make that choice. Even offer him the very members of your being because he is your master. Impurity makes us traitors. Second sober reminder, impurity makes us exploiters. Impurity makes us exploiters. Look at verse 6. That's what Paul says. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. There are far more victims than just my dishonoring of God and, and the dishonoring of myself and my soul. There's more damage done than, than, than even just the other parties involved. In fact, don't think for a second if you could say, ah, but there's, there's no other body in the room, so who's being hurt? There's a victim somewhere. Just trace it far enough and you'll find it. The words that are used here to say don't transgress or to don't defraud, speak of overstepping our boundaries. It speaks of taking that which is not ours. 
To defraud is to use someone else. It's to disregard their needs and their rights for the sake of my pleasures. Sexual sin always takes something that we can never fully give back. So in the long run, ultimately, our own parents will pay, our siblings, our spouses, our children. At some level, society itself somewhere will pay because impurity makes us exploiters. Now, on the other hand, I want you to pause and consider something very encouraging and blessed about this reality that God has woven into the fabric of reality, and that is this. The opposite is true as well. So if you will cling to a noble sexuality, an honorable attitude, a real earnest desire for purity, you know what's going to happen? That is also going to have a far-reaching impact. That also is going to have an influence on parents and siblings and children and society, isn't it? Well, the second sober reminder is that impurity makes us exploiters. Third reminder, impurity makes us Christ's target. Impurity makes us Christ's target. I don't know any other simple way to capture what is said here in verse 6, but it's what Scripture says. And that no man transgress, verse 6, and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and we solemnly warned you. Did you know that Captain America is not the original avenger? (laughs) Yahweh is. In this passage, in fact, it's the Lord Jesus who's singled out. He who is spoken of before in contrast and specifically given title, Lord. I think we're still close enough in verses to that mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of Jesus as being the lamb, as being the sacrifice, as being meek. But, man, rest assured, he is the original taker of vengeance. And he will stand and judge. He who is holy with flaming fire. And with his eyes burning, he will take vengeance on everyone who exploits through impurity. Hebrews chapter 13 says of those who defile the marriage bed that God will judge them. That's a direct quote. So we ought also to consider what the author of Hebrews goes on and says elsewhere in that book. What a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Because he is a consuming fire. Impurity makes us Christ's target because he has a responsibility to himself and to holiness. That's a sobering reminder to help us forth. Impurity shows us ungrateful. Impurity shows us ungrateful. Here's the relational aspect. And I'm talking here about the relationship between us and God and the strain that it puts on us when we choose Impurity. Verse 8 says, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God is generous, isn't he? And what kind of gifts has he given us? His son? Absolutely. But you know what? There's another sense in which he's even given us something more profound. He has given us himself in his Holy Spirit to live in us. You know what Scripture says about that? That is the most profound evidence of our acceptance that we could ever be given. In Acts, when the Gentiles get the Spirit of God, you know what Peter says? He goes, you know, I don't know. They're just a bunch of ragtag Gentiles. But look, all I know is they got the Holy Spirit. So what what can I say about it? If God has accepted them, 
I guess we're stuck with them. <laughs> and that's what he's done for us in Christ by putting his spirit in us. And that is a most profound sign of his acceptance. It is proof of his adoption. It is a product of his willingness to have us for himself. Isn't that what was originally designed in Eden? Isn't that the very purpose for which was Christ was sent? To have us for him. And he does it in, in a profound way, prophesied in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah of the new covenant, the spirit of God would live in us. That's how generous our God is to the point where in Romans 8 it says that the spirit of God in us cries out with our spirit, giving us a new identity, Abba, Father, so that we are children of God. Do you think that's enough for him to do for us? The prophet Isaiah speaks to, to God's people, and the Lord speaking through Isaiah says to the people, you know what, I've given you so much, but if it hadn't been enough, I would have given you more. I would have, I would have given you anything you asked because I'm your God. But you know what? You didn't ask. You just said, no thanks, and you rebelled against me. Impurity spurns the generosity of God, and it shows us ungrateful, and it affects our relationship deep, deeply because it is saying to God, you know what? It's really not enough, Lord. I need more. So let these reminders sober you. The next time that impurity looks really attractive, the next time it's calling to you and says, come and have me and have life and I'll give you everything you want, you just stand back and shake your head and go, no way. You're going to give me death and hell and misery and separate me from the only one who has everything I want. And may it be that by God's grace that there is a growing distaste in our hearts for all manner of lustful, dishonoring pleasure so that we run to Christ because he satisfies, because he's the lover of our souls, because he knows us. Everything that we are after in every sexual temptation, and in fact, in every, every other temptation beyond that, everything that we're after is ultimately found in Christ. Everything else is just counterfeit. Four sober reminders for us. Now, the passage doesn't stop there. It also gives us a gift of grace to give us a new taste so that we would yearn for true life. So I want to look at five life-giving realities now that are found in this passage, five life-giving realities. And I want to do that because I pray that the Lord would, through these things, entice you to fight for wholeness. And I'm praying that through these things that God would create in me a newfound vigilance to seek security and abundance in Christ and in him alone and nothing else. Five life-giving realities. First, seeking purity pleases God. Seeking purity pleases God. That's what we find in verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel, excel still more. Paul says, look, you, you guys are doing this okay. And, and you know what? When you do this thing that you must do, you know what happens is that God is pleased with you. You know what? You will never regret 
purity. The lie of sexual immorality is the opposite. Are you kidding me? You proved you're going to stand there? You're going to regret it? Do you have any idea what you're missing out on? Do you know what I offer you? Everybody is in on it. No. Because <laughs> I want to please my God. Because he satisfies. And I will never regret. We will never regret any cost, any sacrifice, any loss of reputation, any difficulty or hardship for the sake of our seeking of purity. Because we're aliens here, this is not our home. Seeking purity pleases God. What a profound privilege that the God of the universe could smile because we make a hard choice for his sake in the power of his spirit. First, life-giving reality, seeking purity pleases God. Second, purity is not your idea, but God's plan for you. Purity is not your idea, but God's plan for you. That's abundantly clear, but just to see it in the passage, verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's on his authority. It's his idea. It's his plan. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Everybody wants to know, what's the will of God for my life? First Thessalonians 4, 3 tells us. Holiness, period. That is what God is doing, and that is what God will do. Verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. I love this passage, by the way. Grammar geeks, okay? There's a beautiful little difference in the Greek here. He says, God has not called you to impurity. You know what you'd expect to hear next? But he has called you to sanctification. But that's not what he says. He says he has called you in sanctification. Oh, Lord, the entire process is just one beautiful ocean of holiness and goodness and wholeness from beginning to end, starting with a beautiful, pure, and righteous Savior all the way through. I just, I love the, 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 the little inference there that it's, it's such a richer thing. They're not even perfect opposites because impurity just can't even compare to purity. Purity's not your idea. It's God's plan for you. And you know why you and I need to know that as a life-giving reality is because the next time we struggle and we're sitting there and we're praying and we're asking forgiveness and we're going, really, Lord, am I, am I asking for forgiveness again? I've done this like a million times. I thought I'd be done with this by now. And it just feels so hopeless and that we'd never give out, get out. But you know what? Christ has changed you. Christ is changing you. And this battle for purity, it's not your battle. It's his. And he has promised who began a good work in you that he will bring it to completion, right? Oh, praise God for that. That's, that's Paul's entire argument in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. Do you know why you should act holy? Because you're holy. <laughs> you know why should, you should choose righteousness? Because you're righteous. You will never accomplish any holiness that Christ has not already fought for, died for, and granted you. But if he has, it's not his idea. It's not your idea. It's his. Third life-giving reality in this passage is that the practice of purity increases wisdom. The practice of purity increases wisdom. There's such a weird phrase here in verse 4. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. He doesn't just say, this is the second command that you maintain your body in holiness and honor. But he actually says, 
so that you would know how to do that. The reason why I find that insightful is because it's not just a simple list of to-dos or to-don'ts. It's not like, hey, if I got basically four rules, I'll pretty much be like righteous and pure. I've got that knocked. Just pull the list out. It's covered. Your sin is way too devious for four laws to keep you pure. My depravity goes way too deeply in me. I'm far too creative as a wretch and as a lustful and a greedy man for a list of rules to ever make me pure. But you know what happens as we practice purity? We increase in wisdom so we learn to know how to control our bodies and maintain our spirits and deal with our hearts and address our thoughts in sanctification and honor. So as you practice purity, you will begin to know your own soul better. And as you grow in purity, you'll also be grown in finding grace in God's commands. You'll say, Lord, thank you that you have commanded this. You know what's beautiful about 1 Thessalonians 4? is that there's no doubts. And, and I mean, do you think I would say to my three-year-old, hey, honey, by the way, when you see like the top of the stove and it's like burning red hot, hey, from time to time, if you want to, just throw your hand up there and just see if that goes well. Just go for that. That would be awesome. The Lord says, dude, that's death. And part of the wisdom that increases in us is we grow in finding the grace in God's commands where sometimes as a young believer we think this is so confining, this is so restraining, this is such a killjoy. And with wisdom we look back one day and we go, oh God, that is so good. We deepen in our appreciation of God's protection. It's another way we find wisdom. Okay, true confession. This week at one point I was somewhere and I passed a female and in those split seconds that God's Spirit was working in my conscience, I was considering whether or not I was going to turn and take a second look. And I was beginning to think about that. I was outside. Just then, one of our children walked up. Hey, Daddy. Changed the conversation, and it was gone. 30 seconds later, I stopped, and I said, God, thank you for your protection. It's a tiny thing. But that's what we do when we grow in wisdom, right? Because he's just that good to us. So I've decided from now I'm going to take all my children everywhere I go. <laughs> we also gain an appetite to savor his provision. It's not just what God protects us from. It's what he protects us for. And we grow in savoring his provision. And we decide to obey, and, and we find that the, the battle was hard, but we've, we've done it, and we stand on the other side in victory, and we go, you know what, I, I didn't die. I mean, I'm, I'm still here, I think I'm okay. And you know what, in this place, and all I have is Jesus, and it's like really pretty much enough. And we gain an appetite to savor that provision that he holds out for us. It's a life-giving reality of the practice of purity, increasing our wisdom. Fourth, reality. Growing purity is attainable through the Spirit's power. Growing purity is attainable through the Spirit's power. Verse 8, 
Paul writes, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Yes, there's this stark reminder in this passage that this is a rejection of God. We're not playing games, and he will avenge. But there's also just just a glimpse of grace in this. Because Paul is holding out to us, remember? Remember, you have the very Spirit of God. So, you know, we kind of hovered over the, the, the deep and over all the darkness and sort of like, you know, made, oh, everything. He's just that guy. And he gives you the power to walk in obedience and to follow him because he is God and he lives in you. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 5, walk as children of the light. Later on, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. So in the same way as an analogy, just as alcohol can superintend all of our faculties and our thoughts and our desires and our choices, so in the same way the Spirit himself should and can have sway in our lives to where we just go, duh, that is just death. I love you. Let's walk. Spirit of God, thank you. Let's go this way. And growing purity is attainable through the Spirit's power. That's a life-giving reality, especially when you feel like, I've blown it the first 99 times. I know I'm dead on number 100. No, you're not, because you're a new creation. Fifth. Fifth reality is that purity is attractive because the Spirit loves your holiness. Purity is attractive, but the Spirit who loves holiness loves to work holiness in you, loves to see you grow in it. Part of his job description, part of his title, for goodness sake. By the way, again, it's, it's Greek grammar day. By the way, beautiful little way that Paul describes the Holy Spirit. Two different ways you can do adjective modifiers in the Greek. One would basically sound like the Spirit, holy. It's kind of like Spanish in that sense, in that word order. Um, or there's a second way, and both are not uncommon, so Paul's not doing something strange here, but I just appreciate that he takes this second option. There's the Spirit holy, and then there is the Spirit, the one who is holy. Paul takes the second option here, so that by the time you get done with the title of the Holy Spirit, what you've done is pause long enough to see the emphasis on who is the Spirit. Oh, yeah, he's that one who is holy. That's what he does. And he is attracted to holiness and he can do no other than holiness and he loves holiness and he works it in you. And you know what's awesome about that? Because he lives in you. Now there is in you a desire for purity. There is in you a desire, Christian, for holiness. If you have been born again, there's a part of you that loves it and wants it. Purity is attractive because the Spirit loves your holiness. Five life-giving realities. I pray that as these sobering reminders come to you, that God would bring them back as often as possible this week so that you'd fight well and run to him and that these realities would cause you as well to flee to him. But what if you're here this morning and this is just unspeakably painful because you know that you've already blown it so bad? Well, God's grace is more than sufficient. I want to give you, lastly, one soul-reviving hope. One soul-reviving hope that I believe the seeds of which are found in this passage. And the passage in its direction points us there, but it's not Paul's purpose 
at this point to say everything there is to say about this issue of redemption and wholeness. But everything that Paul says here takes us there naturally. I just want to go to that place where we get the last little glimpse. We get the end of that story. First, I want you to just remember we talked about how purity is God's plan for you, right? And that holiness is, is part of his work to redeem you, to make you whole again in every way. So I want to look at at another passage that, just like this one, says those same things and also reflects, as Paul did here, on how incredibly inconsistent it is for the child of God to live continually in impurity and for their lives to be constantly marked by impurity, okay? Because that passage is going to take us the last step that this one doesn't quite go to. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'd like you to turn there, 1 Corinthians 6. And first, I want you to see of the incongruity. Just appreciate Paul writing again here from Corinth. And by the way, these two letters, Corinthians and Thessalonians, are pretty closely tied together because Paul writes to Thessalonica from Corinth. In fact, I, I kind of think it's possible that maybe that Paul was maybe the first Chuck Swindoll and like he kind of preached the sermon in Corinth on Sunday and then that week he worked on the manuscript and he sent the letter to Thessalonica, okay? just like Chuck does, and he has a million books. So I kind of think that's maybe what happened, and and whether or not these themes are overflowing in Paul's heart while he's there in Corinth. And and so listen, the same thing he talks about, the incongruity. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so Paul gives a list of about eight or nine um, ugly characteristics there, and like half or more than half of them are sexual. And he says this is such an incongruity that if an individual's life is marked by these things in consistency, they do not, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes the last step in chapter 6 that he didn't go in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, same word we've been reading, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God, of our God. Such were some of you, brothers and sisters. You are not what you once were. You are a new creation in Christ, and these things no longer define you. If you know Jesus Christ, that is a soul reviving hope as we feel those reminders and we look towards those realities and we say, yeah, but it's way too late. No, it ain't too late because God will display you as a trophy of his glory and his kindness one day. May the gospel of Jesus Christ continue to do its work in me and do its work in you for the love of purity That's why Paul writes, this is the work of the life-changing gospel. And the Thessalonians knew it. They had experienced it. He told them, and you actually do walk this way. They would say, you know what, I get it because I'm not what I once was. And it's the same with you. You know it. May the Spirit of God continue to grow in you a love for purity. Stand with me. Let's pray together.
Gracious Father, we praise you that you plead with us like a good father. And you are not afraid to speak that which is true. So that we will run from the evil and cling to the good and cry out for mercy. Thank you that you love purity. Thank you that purity is beautiful and attractive and powerful. And so much better than anything our world has to offer. Holy Spirit of God, would you come to bring the cleansing that we in this room need this morning. May we drive a stake in the ground and say, we know because of your death, Lord Jesus Christ, because you paid it all, that we are forever new. And we who also still struggle in places with this, may you remind us as often as you need to this week. And may you protect us in ways even now unforeseen and unknown so the Lord, we might grow and increase in wisdom and in our love for purity. Father, thank you for the good work that you do through the gospel. This is what we ask, and this is what we'll praise you for through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for coming. If you are uh, interested, join us for the starting point lunch downstairs. Otherwise, bless you and have a great week.